Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Today's conversation focuses on Special Report China, Rising Power, Anxious State. And it's now available at newsstands in this week's Economist. We're fortunate to once again have with us James Miles, author of the report and China correspondent for The Economist. I invite you to submit questions for James during the broadcast using the chat feature on the bottom of your screen. And please remember to include your name and location so we can pinpoint our listeners from around the world. A special greeting to World Affairs Council members, Economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Jones Day, one firm worldwide. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ audio audiocast archives available on both iTunes and the Council's website, dfwworld.org forward slash globalIQ. Now, during the program, you have the chance to win prizes, courtesy of The Economist, by being the first to correctly answer one of our challenge questions using the online chat. So stay tuned for your opportunity to win. James Miles has been based in Beijing as The Economist China correspondent since 2001. Before that, he held a number of positions with the BBC, including Beijing bureau chief, Hong Kong correspondent, and senior Chinese affairs analyst. He has written many special reports on China and Taiwan for The Economist. Welcome, James. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you. Uh, your, your report is certainly very timely because uh, tomorrow, July 1st, the Chinese Communist Party is going to mark its 90th anniversary. I want to ask you, is this a, a sign of stability or, or is it a point of departure for, for some form of transition? Uh, many Chinese observers seem to focus their discussions on, on whether this delicate balance that we hear so much about, uh, where political freedoms are traded for economic prosperity, will continue. And, and your report certainly delves into, in, into this uncertainty. Well, it's interesting how the Communist Party is presenting uh, th- this anniversary. It, it's really not so very different from celebrations we've seen in the past of of big milestones in the in the in the party's development, uh, we saw a similar sort of build up to the uh, to, to the 80th anniversary and, and previous ones. But what's interesting is that China has changed so much in the last decade. It's been an extraordinary period for China's development, not least uh, the growth of a of a middle class which hardly existed in China in the late 1990s, and then with a, a sweeping program of housing privatization at the end of that decade we really saw the birth uh, of a Chinese middle class, uh, and since then, the tremendous growth of it, fueled by this uh, economic boom, uh, fueled also by uh, the growing wealth of, of, of urban households, and a very large part of that wealth uh, being accounted for by uh, the housing they now own, and, and the rate of uh, uh, housing ownership in, in urban China uh, is comparable, if, if not uh, in excess, of, of, uh, of, of uh, owner occupancy in, in, in developed countries. Uh, at the same time, uh, the uh, development of the internet, which has uh, enabled this, this, uh, uh, this new, uh, relatively wealthy group of people uh, to, to communicate, to air its grievances, to organise in ways that the, the Communist Party finds deeply unsettling. Uh, and yet we're now seeing, in the build-up to this anniversary, uh, the party presenting itself really very much in the same old way. We, we see a nationwide campaign encouraging people to uh, to sing what they call red songs. That, that means 
uh, well, in very large part, uh, songs from from the era of, of, of Mao Zedong. Uh, we see model Communist Party members being praised, uh, um, endless uh, commentaries, editorials praising the great achievements uh, of the Communist Party. Nothing, of course, negative allowed to appear in the in, in the Chinese media. Uh, and there's a, there's a huge gap now appearing between uh, this aspect of the party and the reality on the ground in China, which uh, which is far more varied and complex uh, than, than it was uh, 10, certainly 15 years ago, uh, with uh, a lot of discontent being expressed by various different groups of uh, people, uh, not often surfacing uh, in, in the pages of the official media, uh, but certainly in, in private, um, NGOs, of course, have, uh, have been developing in this period, uh, which uh, hardly existed in the, in the 1990s. Uh, little groups of people, the Communist Party still doesn't allow them to, uh, to get bigger. Uh, so so uh, uh, what we're now seeing, I think, is, is, is the beginning, perhaps, of a new decade in China. And, and this is something I discussed in, in, in some detail in the, in the special report. And, in which the, the party is sort of heading in one direction and, and the rest of Chinese society in another, and, and the, the, the possibility that this will create new instabilities and, and uncertainties against the background of, of, of uh, slowing growth, certainly towards the end of the decade, I think uh, is, is something that's um, causing a great deal of concern in the Chinese leadership. One of the things I wanted to, and we'll talk a, a lot more about the structure of the Communist Party uh, in a few moments, but give me a sense about China's middle class. We hear so often about how so many people have been uh, raised away from poverty, but what's really the purchasing power of, of this middle class? What numbers are we talking about? Well, you see all sorts of numbers um, for estimates of, um, of, of the size of China's middle class. Um, uh, one thing, one, one number that is important is, is that uh, uh, in terms of, the numbers of people who are living uh, in urban China um, for periods uh, longer than six months, uh, we're now on the cusp of uh, exceeding uh, 50% uh, urbanization. Now, of course, not all of those urban residents by any means are, are people we would recognize as being middle class because a very large uh, or significant proportion of those people are migrants uh, from the countryside who haven't yet bought into uh, to, to this homeowning uh, wealth of, uh, of urban Chinese society. Uh, so what we're looking at is um, uh, a, a, a still considerable proportion of that half um, of the Chinese population. So uh, around uh, uh, 600 million or so people, uh, more, more people uh, living in Chinese cities at the moment, uh, and let's say the two-thirds of those might, might be recognizable, uh, perhaps as middle class, although whether that means they can afford to go off on holiday every year, own a car, is, 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 is another matter. But, uh, uh, but it's, it's, it's a big number. Um, uh, it could be anything, depending on how you define it, between, uh, say, 100, 150 million to uh, 300 million, uh, or, or perhaps even more than that. Um, uh, the spending power of this group uh, uh, is is one of the, the huge questions 
uh, that, that China, China now faces. Um, uh, uh, the uh, rate of household consumption has been actually growing quite strongly um, uh, in China over, over the last 10 years. But at the same time, uh, household savings uh, have, have been uh, growing very strongly too. Uh, and th that is a source of a big concern. Um, uh, Chinese households need to save less and spend more in order to rebalance the economy, to, uh, to de depend less on uh, investment and, and, and exports. So although uh, we certainly do see, uh, and if you visit China, any Chinese city, you'll see a huge amount of visible evidence of consumption, um, whether in the form of uh, luxury brands for sale in, 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 uh, in, in uh, uh, shops on, 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 on main streets, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the lifestyles of many Chinese um, uh, restaurants, nightlife, whatever it may be, they're certainly spending money. But uh, but the Chinese government wants them to to spend a lot more. And and one of the big questions in the next ten years is uh, is how achievable that really is. Uh, huge reforms will be needed. And 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 again, this is these are topics and they're various aspects of this that, uh, that I discuss in the special report. But it's not clear that the Chinese government really has the political will uh, to carry out some of these reforms that are necessary to, to achieve the kind of rebalancing it, it, it hopes for. And, and I promise we'd get back to a, a more discussion about the Communist Party, and I think it's related to that. Um, is, is membership compulsory, or is it merely ex expected? And, and are you seeing uh, younger, young professionals joining it? And, and, and is it, say, like the Bath Party, where you were expected to join, but you might not have been that active? Uh, what, how does it really work now? Well, it's certainly not compulsory unless uh, you want to be a government official um, or, or work in the higher echelons of a, of a state-owned enterprise. Uh, it's in fact a, an exclusive uh, party. Um, How many uh, members are there now? Uh, there are now um, just over 80 million members, which out of a population of 1.3 billion is a tiny percentage. Uh, uh, however, uh, uh, desire to join the party, in spite of all the cynicism about ideology that, uh, that has been abundantly manifested, uh, certainly since the late 1980s and the time of the, the Tiananmen Square protests. Uh, nobody really believes in Marxism-Leninism except a, you know, a, a small band of uh, die-hard Maoists who are still out there, who, um, who still make their views known through a, through a clutch of uh, websites which they control and which in spite of all the censorship we see of other kinds of websites in China are allowed to, uh, to um, sing the praises of, of, of the old days in, in China. But these people are, are pretty much at the, uh, at the margins still. Uh, most people are deeply cynical about politics, but desire to join the party uh, among young people not least um, uh, perhaps particularly among young people and, and university students, is, 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 is pretty intense. Back in the 1980s, you would have seen only a, a, a small proportion uh, of university students um, getting into the party. Um, most would have been members of the what, what they call the Communist Youth League, which is a kind of 
a preparatory organization for those who are um, being groomed for um, actual party membership. Uh, but, but very few would make it beyond the Communist Youth League stage. Uh, now we, we've seen over the, over the last 20 years or so uh, the party opening its doors to more and more university students, uh, such that at some elite universities in Beijing, um, 50% or so uh, students um, uh, are, are joining uh, the party. Uh, and the, the party has very good reasons for this. It, it wants to, to win over this group. Uh, university students, of course, were, were a, a major um, factor for instability in, in the 1980s. Uh, they led the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. Uh, uh, since then, the party has made huge efforts to ensure stability on university campuses. And once you're in the party, you're effectively a member, really, of, of, of a kind of secret organization, um, one that gives you great access to jobs and the state sector in government, and those jobs are particularly desirable among uh, well-educated well young Chinese. Uh, jobs in the state sector perhaps in the late 1990s as these state-owned enterprises were being uh, dismantled by the thousands were, were, were far less desirable. But, but nowadays, many young Chinese want those kind of jobs. They want the stability that goes with them. Uh, they want the higher wages that, uh, uh, that those uh, jobs offer. Uh, they want the good um, uh, benefits that go with them. That means um, health care. It means, uh, 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 crucially, uh, um, good pensions at the, uh, at the end of their working lives, things which are not offered for, for, uh, for most uh, employees in, in the private sector. Uh, so uh, the Communist Party has succeeded in buying some stability. But to join the party, is there a recruitment process? Is there, uh, do you fill out an application? Is it interviews? I mean, how, how does one go from saying, yes, I'm interested, to actually becoming a member? Well, there's a grooming period, and during that period, um, uh, you'll, you'll be um, uh, on probation. Uh, that means you'll have to spend your time uh, mouthing uh, the party line, uh, taking part in meetings at which you... Uh, spout party rhetoric and um, show your knowledge of um, Marxism, Leninism, but particularly Mao Zedong thought. And of course, the ideologies of subsequent Chinese uh, leaders, that means uh, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and uh, now Hu Jintao with his uh, ideology of uh, scientific development. Uh, um, uh, these are uh, uh, terms that are very difficult for uh, for really anybody to uh, to understand, but crucially for these people, they have to be able to uh, to at least uh, spout the right phrases, even if they don't fully grasp what they mean. Uh, and also, it means uh, buffering up the the right people. Um, uh, this this is a party that uh, that picks its membership uh, carefully. Uh, uh, it knows that uh, this is an extremely valuable asset, and it uh, and it hands it out cautiously. Uh, anyone in the military will find it um, find it n no problem at all to get in uh, get into the uh, Communist Party. Um, but for for ordinary peasants and workers, interestingly, um, who one would have thought of as being the, the backbone of a uh, of a Communist Party. Um, getting into the, getting into the party is is remarkably uh, difficult. Uh, the party knows well that peasants and blue collar workers are among the most uh, dissatisfied people in Chinese uh, society, and increasingly this is becoming a party of uh, of the middle class, effectively. And middle class interests are becoming central uh, to uh, the, the, uh, the Communist Party's policies.
And indeed, you wrote about the princelings, the next generation of leaders. And maybe you could tell our listeners what you meant by uh, princelings and, and who are they. Well, the princelings uh, are uh, an interesting new group on, on the uh, Chinese political scene. Uh, these are the uh, the offspring of um, uh, the old guard uh, who came to power in in, uh, in 1949, uh, the uh, comrades of, uh, of of Mao Zedong, uh, the children thereof, uh, and also the offspring of um, of senior officials who held power over the last uh, six or more decades of, of, of Communist Party rule. Uh, these people uh, have not automatically um, won themselves top slots in the uh, party leadership. There was a period in the 1990s when uh, many in the party looked, looked askance at these uh, princelings in internal party elections, uh, and one has to use that word with some caution because um, within the Communist Party, although elections are supposed to take place to, to, to leadership positions, they are, of course, carefully uh, controlled. But, but in the 1990s, the party did allow uh, at least a, a, a tiny element of competition to, to creep into uh, elections to central committee uh, posts. And we saw in those that uh, the members of this princeling group uh, did very badly indeed. Um, many were skeptical about uh, the way in which they used their their blood ties uh, to worm them uh, worm themselves into 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 top positions in in the party. Uh, now we've seen something of a change. We're on the cusp now of a of a prominent princeling uh, becoming the paramount leader of China, and that that Xi Jinping, who's now the Chinese vice president. Uh, he, I, I mean, it would it would be extraordinary if he does not uh, next year uh, at the Communist Party's 18th Congress uh, and a Central Committee meeting, which will be held just after that, take over uh, as uh, the, the the party's new General Secretary, replacing uh, Hu Jintao. Uh, the following March, uh, 2013, at a session of the Legislature, he would uh, take over as uh, as President. Uh, there's some question mark over when he might take over as the military chief, um, which is the third and perhaps in some ways the most crucial post that, uh, that Hu Jintao now holds. Uh, there has been a tradition in the, in the past of, uh, of leaders giving up their party positions, that of general secretary, and their state positions, that of president, but keeping the military position for a period of um, a, a year or two uh, to, to provide a degree of continuity when, it, when a new leadership takes over. But uh, there's, a, there's a lot of debate now in China as to whether Hu Jintao might, in fact, give up all his positions, party, state, and military at the same time, uh, and Hu Jintao will, uh, will immediately become China's paramount leader pretty well um, by the end of 2012, uh, early 20, 2013. We could see him uh, controlling uh, all the levers of power in China. Uh, and at the same time, other princelings uh, uh, becoming uh, an even more conspicuous presence at the very top of the, uh, the party hierarchy, that's to say within the uh, uh, standing committee of the, uh, of the Politburo. Uh, one of the most interesting and perhaps colorful uh, uh, politicians we've seen emerge in the last couple of years uh, has been the, the party chief of uh, Chongqing, a, a, a very large a region in, in southwestern China, uh, uh, Bo Xilai, um, who 
uh, is the son of, um, uh, of of one of Mao Zedong's comrades in arms. Uh, he uh, uh, is is clearly a person who is cut from a different cloth than uh, than the traditional um, Chinese leader. He's a charismatic politician. He's been waging a kind of populist campaign in Chongqing, uh, which has involved um, uh, singing red songs most. Uh, uh, most conspicuously, um, encouraging people to uh, to revive um, old party tr- traditions. Uh, it's also involved, uh, um, and, and no doubt much to the uh, to the liking of many people in Chongqing, a, a huge campaign to uh, uh, to build uh, subsidised housing uh, for, uh, for the poor as well as for migrants, uh, and uh, also a considerable emphasis on state-owned enterprises. And I think as we look at the next few years. Uh, in Chinese politics, uh, the role of state-owned enterprises uh, therein will be a very interesting feature. I think uh, this group of princelings uh, comes from a background which feels most comfortable in its alliance with uh, uh, with, with this section of Chinese uh, of the Chinese economy, um, which which does believe there is a huge role to be played uh, by these. Uh, um, uh, uh, large um, uh, state enterprises which control strategic uh, sectors of the, uh, of the Chinese economy uh, and regards them as, um, as key underpinnings of, of, of the Communist Party's rule. Uh, I think they regard that as a stabilizing force. Uh, and however, uh, however, at the same time, I, I think we should also be concerned that in the years ahead, we, we may see this as something that, um, that acts as a bit of a break on China's uh, economic development and its efforts to uh, to, to redefine the economy uh, towards a more consumer-led one. Come back to that in a second, because I was yeah. actually very surprised in reading the report how many of the larger Chinese companies con- continue to be government and, and state-owned. We have a question from Andrew. Uh, China's wages are rising above the average price. If this proves to be true, uh, how quickly will companies start leaving China? Are you beginning to see a migration of companies that have uh, moved their manufacturing to, to China now going to other countries? Well, certainly at the lowest end of manufacturing, yes, um, but, but not at the kind of pace you would expect given, uh, given the, the level of wage increases we're beginning to see in China, uh, and part of that being driven by a demographic uh, trend now that will become increasingly conspicuous in the next decade. In other words, the running out of of, of, of surplus labor from the countryside, which has helped to, uh, to keep uh, Chinese wages so low for so long. Uh, in spite of that, uh, China has built up enormous advantages in, in manufacturing. It, uh, uh, wages as, as, a, uh, as, as a component of um, uh, uh, company uh, profits are, are still uh, balanced against the uh, considerable advantages um, uh, that uh, China's uh, infrastructure development has uh, has given, the ease of transportation, logistics, uh, um, the um, growing level of um, uh, education of the Chinese uh, workforce, which is enabling uh, productivity gains. So even as uh, wages. Uh, have been rising. Uh, productivity uh, ha- has been uh, growing uh, even faster. Uh, uh, there has been a, um, uh, a shake-up in the manufacturing sector in, in the uh, coastal regions, particularly um, in the Pearl River Delta, the Yangtze Delta, where 
some companies are beginning to re- relocate perhaps um, more often further inland in China rather than to to neighboring uh, uh, lower wage economies. Uh, Chongqing has been a, a, a big recipient in, in, in the last uh, two or three years of, uh, of foreign investment and indeed is positioning itself, uh, even though it's deep, deep in the interior, uh, as uh, uh, what some um, economists believe will be uh, Asia's largest manufacturing base for, um, uh, for laptop computers. Um, so that suggests that China still has uh, a lot of potential left in its, uh, in its manufacturing uh, sector. And, and wages, uh, although beginning to rise fast, are, are not uh, such a huge source of concern. And indeed, to the leadership, um, uh, are, are perhaps um, seen more as a good thing. Um, uh, with wage growth comes um, higher consumption, uh, and as I've suggested, that that is uh, now a key objective of the uh, of the government and, and critical to its efforts to to restructure in the economy. And we have a, a good question on domestic consumption from Richard that I'm going to get to in just a minute. But first, I'd like to give one of our listeners a subscription to the Economist. So here's our first challenge question. In recent weeks, hundreds of Chinese have protested the Chinese Communist Party's dominance of elections by A, refusing to vote, B, running for office on an independent ticket, or C, registering dead relatives to vote, D, using microblogs to expose candidates' personal scandals. Again, the question is, in recent weeks, hundreds of Chinese have protested the Chinese Communist Party's dominance of elections. And just go in our auditorium and send us the correct answer. And you'll have a, you can either renew your subscription or begin it. Richard um, James is one of your admirers. Uh, first of all, he writes, "Thank you, thank you for your excellent work. A huge thank you for all of your writings and special sections." Um, and then his question is, and it gets back to what we we're talking about just a moment ago: Chinese middle class accessibility to consumer credit is far more important to consumption of goods and services than their absolute incomes. What is the government's policy about the extension of consumer credit, and how are the banks addressing this? Well, that's something that's been developing uh, slowly in China uh, and with great difficulty. Um, essential to developing consumer credit is, is uh, developing an ability to, uh, to assess the credit worthiness of, of, of uh, household borrowers. Uh, and uh, such systems are, are still in their infancy in, uh, in China. Uh, it's still uh, rare uh, for uh, people to, uh, to make um, uh, purchases of, 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 of luxury goods um, uh, or much of anything, really, using uh, credit. Um, uh, it makes um, uh, online transactions um, a rather interesting process in China. Um, it's, it's very common to, uh, to seal a deal uh, online and, uh, and for the product you, you've ordered to be delivered and then for cash to be uh, handed, handed over on, on delivery. Um, uh, whether it's uh, buying books um, or, or uh, electronics or, or, or whatever it might be, that, that, that's a very common practice. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, for China to, to stimulate consumer uh, spending, um, uh, uh, this will uh, have to change, and, and it is beginning to change, uh, not as fast as many would like. 
I, I don't think it's uh, necessarily something one has to worry about greatly at the moment. Uh, 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 reasons, uh, there are several reasons why Chinese consumer spending is being uh, is being retarded, um, that is not not really a, um, a critical one. Um, it, it's more a question uh, largely of, um, of, of, of inconvenience rather than something that, we, that profoundly affects the overall uh, picture of, of China's consumer spending trajectory. I'd like to um, ask a foreign policy question in just a moment, but first let me congratulate Kim, who is the winner of Challenge Question 1, uh, the correct answer was running for office on an independent ticket. And, uh, Kim, you will receive an extension or a subscription to The Economist. Congratulations. Uh, just a few days ago, the Washington Post ran an editorial, in fact, it was June 26, and it was uh, addressing the visit of Philippine Foreign Secretary Albert Del Rosario, who was in Washington apparently for a specific purpose, and that was to encourage the United States to take a, a stronger stand on China's activities in the South China Sea, uh, specifically pertaining, uh, of course, to the Philippines. Bruce, who uh, is, is from Dallas, uh, mentions that the local Filipino community here um, is rallying to protest the Chinese actions in the, in the South China Sea. Uh, how do you see all this uh, de developing over the course of the next few, uh, the next several months? Well, it's, it's a very worrying trend, uh, and I think it needs to be understood in in the context uh, of China's changing world view uh, over the last uh, two or three years since, since the global financial crisis broke out, but which was even evident uh, before then uh, in 2008 uh, with the hosting in, in August of that year uh, of the Olympic Games uh, in, in Beijing. That, that was a moment of, uh, of great assertiveness uh, for China, uh, a, a time when it wanted um, badly to, uh, to demonstrate that it had uh, come of age as, as, a, um, uh, as, as, a, as, as a rising power, that it was now uh, a power that had truly arrived uh, on uh, the global scene. Uh, the global financial crisis, uh, not long afterwards, uh, really accelerated um, uh, that trend of thinking in China, such that uh, we rapidly saw uh, Chinese leaders uh, assess the world, begin to assess the world in, in different terms. Uh, as they saw it, uh, American power was fast declining, uh, China's uh, fast rising, uh, that was a perception shared uh, widely in Chinese society uh, where the impact of the um, global financial crisis, at least for the uh, well-established uh, urban middle class, was, 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 was relatively uh, minimal. Um, millions of uh, workers were laid off um, from export-oriented uh, uh, businesses uh, along the coast. Uh, these were largely people who, who had come in from the countryside. They melted away back into the countryside. Uh, but for ordinary uh, urban residents, the impact of the global crisis uh, uh, was relatively small. Uh, and what we've seen since then, of course, with massive stimulus spending, uh, has been a surge of uh, growth again in China, um, a, a great feeling of, uh, of, of confidence uh, economically. Uh, and uh, this, I think, has somewhat um, thrown China's um, generally 
um, pragmatic and cautious foreign policy uh, uh, strategy, uh, somewhat out of kilter. Um, you've got now got more people within the system, uh, within the party, within the security apparatus, uh, various bureaucracies who are uh, saying that, look, the world has changed. Um, it's time we uh, stopped keeping such a, uh, a, a low profile uh, on the global scene and started asserting our interests more, uh, more actively. Uh, I think there is still um, a considerable voice and strong voice within the party that is saying, uh, no, uh, we, need, we, we still need to hold back. The time is not yet right. Uh, but the result of this debate has been uh, that China has been behaving a, a bit oddly and in ways that have been highly unsettling to its neighbors. We saw uh, uh, the uh, spat with Japan uh, last year over uh, uh, the uh, collision of a Chinese uh, fishing boat with a, with a Japanese uh, a, a patrol boat. Uh, the arrest of the uh, fishing captain and all the um, uh, the furor that this aroused in uh, in China, um, huge calls on the internet from from ordinary citizens for uh, China to stand up to Japan and and indeed for uh, for quite a, a while in ways that that the Japanese found inc very very disconcerting. Uh, uh, the Chinese uh, made strident demands for. Uh, for the return of this captain, absolutely uh, fishing captain, and, and uh, absolutely uh, rejected out of hand Japan's uh, uh, assertion that that, that, a, that a legal process had to be gone through uh, before he could be set free. Uh, in the end, the, uh, the Japanese uh, climbed down, but I think the, the reverberations of that are, are still uh, are still felt uh, in Japan. Uh, now we're seeing something developing in the South China Sea, which uh, which, which is having similar uh, repercussions uh, among China's neighbours, particularly Vietnam and the uh, Philippines. Uh, we're seeing um, Chinese uh, boats um, um, uh, approaching uh, vessels from 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 Vietnam. Um, uh, trying to uh, deter them from op operating in waters that, uh, that China regards as, uh, as, as its own, uh, uh, putting aside um, painstakingly um, constructed uh, agreements with these countries that, that, uh, that any disputes over, over sovereignty should be uh, resolved uh, peacefully without resort to, uh, to force. Uh, and, and much more assertively um, trying to push away um, uh, Vietnamese and, and uh, uh, Philippine uh, uh, vessels from, uh, from, from carrying out activities that China regards as, as violations of its, of its and sovereignty. And it has to be somewhat worrisome that China is about to launch its first aircraft carrier, or I, I remember, I believe it was last January, when uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Gates was, was, was in uh, Beijing for discussions, and that's when they decided to do a test flight of, of a stealth fighter. I mean, I wouldn't quite say that's, you know, waving a saber, but it's, it's getting a little close. Yes. Uh, um, I mean, no, nobody believes that uh, that China, just by having an aircraft carrier, is 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 suddenly going to change the game uh, in in East, East Asia. China has been working on this for 
uh, for many years. The, the hull of the vessel is one that was built in the Ukraine uh, uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is, this is not a huge um, technological uh, breakthrough. Uh, there are um, uh, other countries. India has um, aircraft carriers already. Uh, so this is China trying to catch up um, uh, and asserting itself symbolically. Um, uh, it has long regarded the mere possession of an aircraft carrier as, uh, as a badge of, uh, of a naval power. But, but what's worrying is not so much the uh, the military firepower that, a, that, that, that an aircraft carrier might, might give China, but, but what sort of message it's trying to send by acquiring one. Uh, and it's not even clear that China itself has really worked out the answer uh, to that one. Uh, it still uh, talks of itself as a power which is primarily concerned with defending its, uh, uh, its uh, coastal interests, um, defending its sovereignty, um, uh, uh, and that's uh, uh, somewhat worrying uh, to, to countries in the region because China's sovereign claims, particularly in the South China Sea, are, are terribly vague uh, and, uh, in fact, run uh, deep, deep into uh, in, into areas uh, which uh, uh, rub up against uh, uh, other countries far from uh, China's own shores. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, th 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 there is an expectation or, or a worry now that, that um, owning a Chinese, that owning a, an aircraft carrier will, will encourage the Chinese Navy to um, to patrol, uh, patrol those seas with, um, uh, with with a greater sense um, uh, of, of, of ownership um, and. Uh, the, the point of this is is, uh, is, is to show other countries that um, China um, is determined to become a, um, a serious uh, blue water navy. Uh, that ultimately, even though one aircraft carrier won't change the, uh, the game, but that is ultimately uh, positioning itself uh, to uh, supplant uh, American power in, in, in that part of the world. And, and that is of deep concern to, uh, to, to a number of countries in, in, in the region. Still a very long way off if, if it can ever happen, but, um, uh, but enough of a concern already. But you're also seeing an increase in the defense budget. Uh, I believe now they're back to double-digit increase and in, in, in reaching close to 90, $92 billion this year. Well, indeed. Um, although um, the talk of the town uh, earlier this year, when the, when the when the budgets were passed, was that uh, spending on internal security is now, or, or the growth in spending, uh, the actual number um, uh, has has exceeded that on uh, defence spending uh, for the first time. Uh, one one has to always bear in mind with these. Um, Seemingly worrisome, or perhaps worrisome, developments in China from 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 an American or uh, Japanese uh, or you know, uh, Southeast Asian country perspective. Uh, that at the same time, uh, China from inside uh, looks vulnerable, um, and the Communist Party feels uh, deeply uh, uncertain about. Uh, its, its grip on power, uh, uh, while, while building up what appears to be a, an, a, an impressive 
military arsenal, which which in some ways has uh, changed the picture in in, uh, in this part of the world in, in the last few years. The um, growing uh, accuracy uh, and range of, of Chinese missiles uh, uh, has uh, given pause for thought for the, for, uh, for, for the American military in in, uh, in the Western Pacific. But internally, of course, China being beset by so many troubles is, 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 is anxious not to pick too big a fight abroad. And I think that's still an important calculation which we have to bear in mind, that, that it is still restrained by the thought that if it does get in, embroiled, engaged in these um, uh, big confrontations beyond its borders, uh, that could well complicate the picture internally and make it much more difficult for the party to control the situation at home. That's only an area that deserves our continued attention. Unfortunately, we only have about 20 minutes left, and there's lots more to cover. And I'm going to combine two questions because they're somewhat related. Uh, Red asks, what do you think are the general implications for the West once the renminbi is fully tradable and the Chinese people are, are able to invest outside of China? And then Kathy asks, Chinese currency is not freely convertible but the government allows it to be used for import-export settlement as a result of the globalization of the currency. Asian countries are trading currency heavily, but the U.S. has not jumped on the wagon, even though the U.S. is the largest trading partner of China. So, in short, James, can you give us a quick overview of some of the issues surrounding uh, uh, Chinese currency and the uh, uh, devaluation? Well, I think we're still a, a long way off um, a, a, a fully convertible currency. Um, uh, China uh, has uh, raised expectations of, uh, of this. Uh, uh, it, it remains a, a, an official objective uh, for, for the longer term. It's never set a, a specific deadline, although it has talked about uh, creating Shanghai as a um, as, as a global uh, financial centre uh, um, uh, by 2020, which means uh, many suppose uh, you can't have, have a global uh, an international financial centre without without a freely convertible currency. So some have seen that as a kind of uh, um, target uh, target date. But but I I think the the Chinese authorities are deliberately fudging this. Um, uh, they uh, want to keep um, uh, capital control, uh, especially um, fearing um, the huge movements of, uh, of, of capital uh, in or out of the country uh, will, will uh, be, be uh, uh, destabilizing for the Chinese economy. Uh, they um, still look back on... Um, uh, crises of the past, the Asian uh, financial crisis in, in the late uh, 1990s uh, that, that they see as, as partly the result of uh, um, uh, a, a, a lack of control um, uh, over currencies among the, the countries involved. Uh, uh, so I think this is going to be a very slow um, uh, process, and, and, and I really don't think the Chinese uh, government is in, is, is in any hurry at all to, uh, to move it along. Uh, the other question is um, how fast it might allow, uh, in spite of that, how fast it might allow the currency to, uh, to appreciate, um, uh, which, which has obviously been something very strongly demanded, particularly in, uh, in the United States. Uh, some of the pressure for that has been eased by um, by the difference in, in inflation rates between uh, between the two countries, between China and America. Uh, inflation in China 
uh, which officially uh, last uh, month was 5.5%, uh, the highest rate in nearly um, nearly three years. Uh, uh, according to the uh, Treasury Department, uh, the, uh, the the difference in, 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 in inflation levels between the two countries means that effectively the uh, the Chinese currency, the yen, is is appreciating uh, against the dollar at ten uh, percent at, at, uh, a year, um, and and so to some extent this this. Uh, this takes a little bit of the wind out out of the uh, out of the political um, uh, differences that the two countries have had over over the um, the exchange rate of of the Chinese currency. Uh, the Chinese leadership uh, does want to um, keep pushing forward that that progress of uh, of, of appreciation. Um, it, it sees it as one instrument in. Uh, in helping to um, to restrain uh, uh, inflation at home, uh, uh, but I don't think it um, it, it sees a, a, a convertible currency as as, 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 as as an immediate goal at all. Um, uh, it would far rather kick that ball to the uh, to the next generation of leaders, and I, I very much suspect they'll handle it in much the same way. That often seems to be the tendency of politicians, isn't it? Kick the ball down the road, down the field. We have several questions about human rights, and um, you certainly go into considerable detail about that in the special report. Uh, for instance, the word jasmine revolution, referring to the revolution in Tunisia. Uh, you can't even enter that into your, your Google, I believe, when you're in, in China. Um, you note that there's been an incredible increase in the number of, of, of protests uh, throughout the, the country. Um, and um, Ray Smith uh, from from Dallas, he, he, and I think you can tie this his question into your your, your comments on uh, what's been happening as far as uh, censorship and so forth. Uh, Ray asked, one of the problems with the Soviet economy in the 70s and early 80s was that information control made it difficult for Soviet science to keep up with world developments. Ray's impression is that that's less the case in China. Uh, do you agree? And if so, how are the Chinese managing the control information without inhibiting scientific development? Yes, well, I, I think I agree with Ray on that point. Uh, uh, certainly, information controls um, uh, on the Internet in China are, are a major irritant uh, in, in almost every active Internet user's day-to-day -day life. I mean, it, um, uh, it, it's um, remarkable how often browsing the internet one comes across sites which one simply cannot access because of the great Chinese firewall. Uh, I don't think that uh, is uh, a problem for uh, for scientists, for those who need to exchange information with uh, with colleagues in uh, in other countries or get access to. Um, uh, to, uh, to libraries or databases um, uh, outside China. Uh, uh, there are other reasons to be concerned about uh, China's ability to, to innovate in the years ahead. Uh, one is um, the nature of spending on, uh, on research and development, so much of which is directed through uh, through state-owned enterprises, um, uh, the government has 
have been making strenuous efforts, and uh, uh, rightly it realizes that uh, that innovation, the knowledge economy, is uh, is, is will be uh, a, a crucial part of, uh, of the country's overall development in the years ahead. Uh, but wrongly, it has been funneling um, um, uh, much of its money into um, uh, R&D by state-owned enterprises, uh, which don't really know how to spend it uh, uh, effectively. Um, there is still very much within the mentality of the leadership a, a great belief in in, in big, high-profile projects and, and large, money, large amounts of money are directed at them in order to, uh, to make what appear to be stunning uh, achievements uh, uh, for the party. But the, the small incremental breakthroughs that, that, are, that are necessary for China's advancement are, are perhaps somewhat held back by this strategy. James, I've read this morning that China opened the world's longest sea bridge, uh, surpassing that in uh, Louisiana a bridge that's 26.4 miles long. It, it is extraordinary, just off the, the port of Qingdao. And, and um, what's also extraordinary is that I suspect many people in China were simply unaware that this was, uh, this was going on. Um, to wake up suddenly to, <laughs> to this kind of news is, um, is, is, is a, a, a rather regular occurrence uh, in China. But, but there are also, of course, worries that... Um, uh, that these are, um, I'm, I'm not saying specifically this particular, uh, particular bridge, but, um, uh, but some of these um, extraordinary uh, infrastructure projects are uh, as much aimed at uh, as, as bo- boosting the political profiles of, of, of Chinese leaders um, rather than achieving anything worthwhile uh, economically. So, um, so one, one certainly has to wonder how much money is being wasted on them. Well, this article I'm looking at now says that 10,000 workers worked, uh, toiled in two teams around the clock to build a bridge. So I, I, I think that's not the type of infrastructure project that we could do very easily uh, in the United States or, or in the UK. But, but back to the, the protest and some of the human rights issues that have been in the news so much recently. Why, why do you think that this is happening, and, and why has the, the party or the government cracked down uh, so hard. I mean, we've read about a number of journalists being uh, being arrested. Uh, again, increased censorship. Uh, artists being removed. Um, so there, there does seem to be a significant change in, in, in the last year. Well, I think I think what's interesting uh, about this uh, is not the, not the number of protests or indeed the fact that the government is cracking down on them. I mean, that's been the pattern of uh, of of China's progress really for, uh, for much of the last uh, 30 odd years or certainly since um, uh, the, the late 1980s as, as unrest began to grow in the uh, build up to the Tiananmen Square protests of, of, of 1989 uh, there's always been a sense of um, uh, people pushing the envelope the, the party uh, pushing back um, those Caught um, on the wrong side of the line, very often being uh, detained, sent away uh, to uh, prisons for several years. Uh, that's happening again in China. But what's, what's interesting, I think, um, uh, is uh, the uh, persistence of, um, of uh, this trend. Uh, this is not something, uh, although it, it's been much reported on in the last few months, but it's not something that is 
uh, that has suddenly emerged. I think uh, we've really seen quite consistently, um, certainly since 2008, um, a, a greater assertiveness by uh, the Chinese security apparatus. Um, perhaps some people speculate because um, it became so involved in uh, in establishing security in the build-up to uh, the Olympic Games in, in, in August 2008, uh, was obviously um, critically involved in, in suppressing the unrest uh, in uh, Tibet in, in, in March of that year. And then in the following year, in July 2009, uh, the um, a huge outbreak of rioting in, in Urumqi, the capital of, uh, of, of the Xinjiang uh, region. Uh, we are, I think... Um, um, in a somewhat different um, situation now than in crackdowns um, than we've seen in the recent past, uh, there is a more concerted effort now to to, to pick apart the the fabric of of civil society than, we, than we've seen uh, in in many years. Uh, we've had a number of crackdowns before. Of course, there was the, the huge crackdown on Falun Gong in the in the late 1990s. Thousands sent away to uh, to, to prison camps uh, uh, for two, three, four years, uh, perhaps longer for some. Uh, earlier, um, a big crackdown on, on an underground party, the China Democracy Party, uh, and of course, the huge crackdown that, that unfolded after the 1989 uh, protests. Uh, but this one uh, uh, involves a very broad spectrum of people, uh, lawyers, uh, human rights activi activists, b bloggers, uh, journalists, uh, and uh, these are not uh, very often people who are involved in any um, subversive group, uh, um, uh, who are not... Uh, members of a of an organization which is um, conspicuously on the wrong side of the line as, as Falun Gong came to be or the China Democracy Party uh, was in the 1990s. Uh, these are people who've um, uh, been busy in, in small uh, NGOs, um, occasionally for sure irritating uh, Communist Party officials but not actively campaigning for the overthrow of the Communist Party or for, or for the introduction of a multi-party system or uh, or anything of that nature. Uh, so what we seem to be seeing uh, is, uh, is is a freeze um, that uh, suggests the Communist Party has become more fundamentally worried about um, the way China is changing socially uh, in general, uh, rather than specifically targeting a a group it doesn't like. Um, it, it's clearly deeply worried by the way that uh, these NGOs have been developing over over the last uh, 10 years. Uh, although uh, they're all uh, very small, uh, the party has never allowed them to, to grow on a, on a nationwide scale. Uh, they operate um, with great difficulty. It's uh, been extremely difficult for, for most of them to, to even get registered. Many had to operate officially as, as businesses, which means they're subject to, uh, to business tax. It's very difficult for them to receive any funding from, from outside groups. Uh, but in spite of all those restrictions, the, uh, the party uh, is deeply fearful of the way in which um, a non-party-controlled civil society is, is beginning to emerge. And, and so that, that, I think, is a key 
uh, target of, of uh, this crackdown. Uh, and, and what I think, I mean, I mean, just to sort of quickly summarize my view, looking ahead, I, th- I think after the 18th Party Congress next year, I think the new leadership may well be inclined to keep uh, to keep up this kind of pressure. Um, uh, that they will feel um, uh, nervous and unsettled, and uh, and we're likely to see this as uh, as as a pattern, of, uh, as a long-term pattern of repression, not not the the relatively brief cycles of of, uh, of repression that we've seen in the past. But yeah, and that's certainly going to be a, a challenge for countries like the United States and and, and Great Britain, who, who put such emphasis on, on on human rights with their dealings with other countries. I want to give a copy of your book, uh, James, away to one of our listeners. Your book, uh, The Legacy of Tiananmen: China in Disarray. Um, it was published a few years ago, but I think given the uh, change in government that will ex- leadership that we'll expect in the next year and uh, some of the issues that we've just talked about on human rights, uh, our, our listeners would find your book very, very interesting. It is available on, on uh, Amazon, and whoever answers this question correctly, the first person, will receive a copy of James's book, The Legacy of Tiananmen, China in Disarray. The question is, of the estimated 585,000 Chinese with more than 1.5 million in investable assets, more than half are considering immigration for all of the following reasons, except A, China's strict family planning policy, B, education, C, civil human rights abuse, D, preparation for retirement. To be the first person to answer that question correctly and receive a copy of James's book, the legacy of Tiananmen, China in disarray. One of the, uh, uh, another question that, that we have is uh, from Matt, who just recently returned from China, he notes. And he says, can you address the recent phenomenon of China, China students coming to America or London for education, entry into Fortune 100 companies, getting corporate expertise, then leaving the U.S. and going back to China and starting competitive companies? And he mentions one company in particular, uh, Vance Info, which he says was founded by Steve and David Chen, um, and where these uh, gentlemen had worked with uh, IT and Cisco and IBM, then they left and started this company. Um, do you see uh, a trend of this? Well, uh, I mean, I think the reasons for it would, would be um, pretty obvious. Um, uh, in the current economic climate in in America, um, career prospects um, are certainly uh, clouded by that, um, there, there is, I think, also a, a sense among uh, uh, among many uh, uh, American-educated Chinese uh, emigres that uh, that they encounter something of a of, of a glass ceiling as as they uh, move up in American companies, um, uh, and that uh, their opportunities. Uh, uh, if they return, are um, are much better to, to put their um, creative talents to um, to work. Uh, uh, they're offered considerable enticements to uh, to come back by uh, by Chinese companies. Um, uh, uh, these are boom times, of course, in uh, in China. There are uh, great opportunities for. Um, uh, for startup uh, companies, uh, uh, the whole uh, dot-com scene, of course, has been uh, uh, has been booming in uh, China in recent years. Uh, 
uh, notwithstanding of, uh, some recent problems in, the, in that sector. Um, so it's entirely understandable. Uh, many Chinese are, uh, uh, are, are coming back and, um, uh, and, and are highly desirable to, um, uh, to Chinese firms in China um, because of their uh, Western educations. Uh, the uh, difficult thing to um, to assess fully in terms of this trend is, is how much it's really changing the way Chinese uh, business is, is done in China, um, whether Western ways of doing business um, are somehow changing uh, the business scene in China itself. Uh, I think o- o- overall, um, uh, the answer to that is perhaps not nearly as much as one would expect. And in many cases, the companies continue to, to, to build close relationships and, and, and develop their business relationships, businesses. The uh, correct answer came from Armano. Let me ask, read the question again. Of the estimated 585,000 Chinese with more than 1.5 million investable assets, uh, more than half are considering immigration for all of the following reasons, except and the answer was civil rights abuse. Uh, James, we barely, barely scratched the surface of your report. Uh, it was so comprehensive and, and interesting, and I want to encourage all of our listeners to, to read the report if you've not yet had the opportunity to do so. And uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, James, but we did have a number of questions we couldn't get to. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to send those to you, and at your leisure, maybe you could uh, write a brief reply to them, and we'll pop it on our Global IQ site so that the... Uh, 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 folks can uh, see, see, see your thoughts on these questions if you wouldn't mind doing that. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Jim. Yeah. Right. Well, thanks again for being with us. Uh, you really are one of the most knowledgeable uh, uh, people about China, and we're always uh, eager to read your reports in, in The Economist. I want to remind our listeners that this October, The Economist will hold its third annual Buttonwood Gathering. This is a two-day conference that brings together global thought leaders, practitioners, and provocateurs in international finance. I'm planning to be there, and I hope you'll join me. It'll be in New York City on October 26th and 27th. For details, go to buttonwood.economist.com. Stay tuned to Global IQ email updates for more information about the Buttonwood Gathering and, let me be sure to mention, a special discount only available to our listeners. If, by chance, you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, please go to economist.com right now to start your subscription. And also visit dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on our program with The Economist. Our next one will be on July 13th, focusing on the publication special report, The News, with digital editor Tom Standage. Also, to find a World Affairs Council near you, please visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Jones Day. Remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.